Are you convinced that you are not your own salvation? Hello and welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. I'm your host, Mike Gomer Gormley, but today I'm not joined by my illustrious co-host, Dave the Bearded Fox Van Vickle, because of life. For the last two weeks, we have been trying to record this episode, and our schedules could not align, mostly because my kiddo had to go to the hospital for about three days. So Dave was talking and doing all this stuff. So what we're doing is bringing you another example of how I bring the charisma within my own parish's setting. So this talk that you're going to hear today is for our That Man Is You group that meets at my parish every Friday morning before work. I was invited for two weeks to give two talks on evangelization. This is the first one. And so you can hear how I introduce and weave the charisma into this talk. Next week, we're going to have a regular show with the Bearded Fox himself, so you can rest easy that you'll hear his wonderful vibrato. Maybe we'll make him sing something. I don't know. Here we go. Now, in Matthew chapter 28, right at the very end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus, the resurrected, risen Lord, gives his disciples a commandment, right? I'm going to read it to you. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted, which is a pretty epic line. They worshipped him, but some doubted. The risen Jesus is standing in front of them, and some are like, well, okay, so. (laughs) And Jesus came and said to them, now, you need to hear the words. You might have heard this before, but I need you to hear these words anew today. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then the next word is, go, therefore. I have all authority in heaven and earth, and I'm telling you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the close of the age. This is incredibly important for us to understand. Our mission is the mission of Jesus Christ. You are not a Roman Catholic so you can get an edge on playing bingo, right? You are a Roman Catholic because Jesus Christ died for your sins, rose for your eternal life, and then commissioned you to bring the good news of salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, Christians co-opted the word evangelization, or euvangelion, right? The, the people who go out and proclaim the good news. The word gospel comes from ultimately the, the, the Greek meaning good news, And what they used to do in Roman provinces is after they would conquer an area, they would send out evangelists of Caesar. And they would go through the towns and villages proclaiming the good news that they now belong to the Roman Empire. Now, for many people, that is mixed good news, right? Uh, Hey, guess what? You've been conquered. Yay, right? So this is this notion, right? Now, let's also not forget that the Caesars, following Caesar Augustus, who was there at the birth of Christ... um, his census is what got Joseph to go from the north down to Bethlehem, that Caesar Augustus thought of himself as the divine Caesar Augustus, and he considered all the Roman coinage at the time had his image on the front and on the back it said Caesar Augustus, the son of God, or the son of the gods, right? That was his title, right? At the time of Christ's crucifixion, there was the son of God being killed by a supposed son of God, or the gods, right? So you have this notion, you have this notion that... um, 
that God is up to something very, very specific in his church when his church leaders co-opt the term for, for uh, the, you know, the good news, the heralds, right? St. Paul uses this term over and over again to describe his mission. What is his mission? To bring the good news to people. What's the good news? That Christ has conquered sin and death. And that you have access, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your sinful status, regardless of how much of an outsider you are, you now have access to eternal life because of what he did for you, not because of who you are. That is good news. That is the good news. That is news. A lot of times when we talk about the gospel, people think, oh, it's, it's like social justice, it's helping my neighbor. That's, that's a consequence of the gospel. The gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is an event that happened in the past that we are sent out to proclaim, right? That's the, that's the, the essence of what it means to preach the gospel. Bishop Barron in one of his um, recent homilies was talking about, he says, the gospel is the resurrection. And what he said by that is he was just at a campus event. In fact, one of my um, friends, Marcel Lejeune, the associate director of campus ministry at St. Mary's at uh, Texas A&M, he said that, um, good, no, no uh, cult-like responses when I said Texas A&M. Uh, he, uh, he said, you know, someone asked the question, what do you, what do you, uh, uh, what do you, what does an evangelized student look like? And so people say, oh, well, someone who goes mass, someone who does this, someone who does this, does this. And uh, he was one of the last people to answer. And he said, no, an evangelizing student is first and foremost, or evangelized student is first and foremost one who accepts the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, Right? And that's central to everything. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you are still in your sins. And this is the greatest game of all. We are stupid, pathetic people. And though that's a paraphrase of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. You and I are still in our sins. And of all people on the earth, we are the most to be pitied. Why? Because this is not a game. Your sin really sends you to a real hell. Right? Your sins really send you to a real hell. We don't, we don't ever think about that today. You know, we got the, 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 the God of love, and we've totally deleted justice and judgment from him, right? But your sins really separate you from God. That's what hell is. Hell is, hell is just separation from God. And you had hell in your own lives, I'm sure, as I have, right? Those moments in our lives where we choose ourself over and against God. I mean, come on, we do this in our marriages, right? What makes our marriages hell? When two people stop living as one, and they start living as two people. That's what makes our marriage hell. But what does God want to be with us? The Father and I are one. As the Father loves me, so I love you, right? Jesus Christ gave us the power of the Holy Spirit so the two would become one. But what happens if we try to go off on our own path? Well, then we become separated from God. That's hell. Hell is eternal separation from God with a capital H, but a lowercase h is the hell that we create for ourselves day in and day out by making those million small decisions to choose not to hate God, but to choose ourselves over and against God. I mean, that's the sin of Adam and Eve, right? Nowhere in Genesis chapter 3 did Eve walk up to the tree and say, I am a liberated woman. I will not listen to my patriarchal man. I, you know, no God or gods can tell me how to live my life. Grab the apple, right? She never did that, right? Number one, because it doesn't even mention an apple. Number two, she did make that noise when she ate it. That's a total seven. That's in the Hebrew. It gets lost in the translation, but... Um, <laughs> but uh 
she, uh, what did she do? She saw that the tree was pleasing to the eyes, good for food, and desirable for gaining wisdom. So scripture says, those three things. Which one of those are intrinsically evil? None of them. Except for the fact that God said, don't do it. Right? And why is this so important for us? It's not that she chose to hate God. She just made God number two in her life. And if God is real, if there is an infinite, eternal, trinitarian God and he created the universe, and he wants a relationship with you, the most logically absurd thing you can do is put God in your top ten, or your top five, or your top three. If you are more important than God, you're doing it wrong. right? That's why Frank Sheed wrote a wonderful book whose title is Theology and Sanity. I can't tell you how many times people, including myself, whenever you first get the book, we totally misread the cover. We think it says Theology and Sanctity. But it's a sanity because the whole opening chapter is if God is real and we just don't believe in God or don't factor him into our understanding of the universe, he said, then we are quite literally insane because he's the most biggest, he's the big, most biggest, there we go. He's the biggest component of that universe. And if we don't, if our minds aren't aligning to that fact, then we're insane, right? God insanity. And so what I want to do, what I want to do for you is I want to talk to you very, about the essential gospel message, what we call the kerygma. Who's ever heard of that term, kerygma? It's a Greek word. One, two, three, four, five, seven. Okay, all of you. Uh, <laughs> good, I guess I'm done here. Uh, the word kerygma means quite literally proclaim or preaching, right? And that in the early church was used as a distinguishing mark between kerygma and the didache, or the teaching, right? Preaching and teaching. Preaching is preaching the basic gospel message that this happened to Jesus Christ and it was done for you. And then once a person responds to the proclamation of faith with faith, the proclamation of Christ with faith, then and only then should they be taught, right? What we call catechesis today, right? And yet today, actually, because of cultural Catholicism, because, you know, we pretty much baptized everyone we could in Europe for about 800 years, <clears throat> what ended up happening is we reached an absurd state today where we have masses of people who have never been evangelized, have never heard the kerygma, have never responded in faith to the invitation to give up everything and follow Christ, and yet are being catechized. We're being taught without being preached, right? We're, we're, it's like we're at a party and we had no idea how to get there, but we're supposed to know what's going on, right? Now, Jesus Christ right, has never been proclaimed to large groups of people. I, I did a parish mission in St. Louis, a wonderful parish. And <clears throat> I've told this story before, so I'm um, sorry if you, you've heard it. But a lot of times when I do parish missions, I pull like a, I skew a younger crowd. I don't know why. Uh, probably my boyish good looks. But um, younger crowds generally come. But this, this, this church was just made up of, of an older crowd. And so they were there. And so I just did three days of preaching the basic gospel message and challenging them with it. And they came up to me and they would say, and they have a phenomenal priest. And they would say things like, um, I have never heard this before in my entire life. I've never heard this before in my entire life. So what I want to do right now is I want to preach the basic gospel message to you by pointing out how God has prepared us for us through salvation history. So I want you guys uh, to do me a favor. I want you to buckle up because it's going to be bumpy. Here we go. You ready? No? Okay. Here we go. In the book of Genesis, God created everything. And we understand the God, uh, you know, the story of the Garden of Eden. Right. God placed man, male and female, in the midst of the garden, gave them one commandment, but gave them abundant blessing. But what did we do? We looked at the very edge by listening to the serpent. We looked at the edge of our freedom, and we responded by making God not number one in our lives. 
And so what happens? Immediately, what does sin do? It says that, the, that their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked. So they made, I like one translation, it says they made aprons for themselves out of fig leaves. It's like this says, kiss the cook, right? So they made aprons for themselves. How do we know where they put the fig leaves? They're like, oh my gosh, I'm my elbow. Now, we know where they put the fig leaves. Why? Because we know that this, that their nakedness now carried shame. Whereas before their nakedness had no shame. What does that mean? Pope John Paul uh, in his theology of the body illustrates that when you have original innocence, when you do not have the capability to sin, or you, you are not uh, filled with sin, let me put it that way, that when man looked at woman and woman looked at man and they were perfect and naked, that they did not lust for one another. They could not use or would not use the other. And now all of a sudden, their eyes are opened to a world of evil and they can turn the person that they love into an object of use. Right, an object of use. So what did they do? Pope John Paul says that the, the experience of shame is a self-defense mechanism. I don't want you to treat me like an object, so I protect myself from you. You hear these words, the original couple, literally the two people in all of human history that were made for each other, literally, right? Literally made for each other are now having to protect and defend themselves from one another. Right? This is what sin does. It undoes us. Right, it undoes us. Remember when, uh, uh, not to get political or anything, but just to illustrate a point. When Bill Clinton had the the affairs and all this stuff was coming out, people who were who were you know supporters of his would say, "Well, this just humanizes the president." Right? I remember this is a big deal, and I thought this was so powerful. Sin dehumanizes us. It doesn't humanize us. Oh, he's just one of us. No, this is, I mean, he is indeed, because his sins are just like ours. And we become lost in arrogance and self-righteousness when we point at another person's sins in order to make ourselves feel better. So Dr. Han, one day in the middle of all this, said, uh, the moment I'm more outraged at another person's sin than my own is the day I need a reality check, because their sins don't send me to hell the last time I checked, right? So when we look at this stuff, right, that's a sobering judgment call, right? Oh, okay, I'll Stop tweeting then. Uh, so when we look at this, right, we have Adam and Eve in the garden. They just sinned. What does God do at that very moment? This is the first proclamation of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. In the very chapter of the fall, there is the first proclamation of the gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He curses the serpent. He punishes the man and the woman, but he curses the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, between your offspring and her offspring. And he will crush your head. And you will bite at his heel. In the very middle of the garden, in the middle of the fall, he goes to the Nahash, the dragon, the serpent, the snake, whatever. And he goes to the serpent and he curses him saying, one day you will be defeated. The church has always looked at that verse that says, at the moment of absolute despair, God buoyed humanity up by hope. At the very moment when all was lost, God gave us a life preserver in the form of a prophecy. He did not abandon us into sin. But there's something else besides the promise of future redemption, of, of someone who would come that is the seed of a woman. I don't know if you know this in biology. Probably went to public school. But women don't have seed. Uh, that's a joke. But women don't have seed. Okay, what's the one woman who didn't need the seed of a man in order to have an offspring? There you go. Okay. Um, Y'all attended catechism very well. So when we look at this, right, we see, though, the problem remains. The problem is within us. Right? The problem is not a lack of social coordination. The founder of, modern, um, uh, of the modern United Kingdom's uh, welfare state, 
she did a whole bunch of writings in the uh, 1890s about her unbridled optimism that if we could just educate, if we could just feed, if we could just provide enough adequate housing and health care, then the ills of United Kingdom societies would correct themselves, right? So after about 50 years of engaging in this, she says, what is wrong with humanity, right? No matter what we do, it still seems to be undone, right? <clears throat> I get her, her, you her exact quote, but she became increasingly frustrated with what we call original sin. Original sin, that sin that G.K. Chesterton, great Catholic English writer, said uh, is the only sin that's, or is the only doctrine of the church that's empirically verifiable. Just open up a newspaper, right? Um, <laughs> and when we look at this, what does original sin mean? What does original sin mean for you today? Original sin means, right, that with your baptism, right, the, lo- the lack of grace uh, has been replaced by sanctifying grace. That's what, so original sin is uh, the natural state whereby we have lost our union with God that is only restored through baptism and faith and living faith in Jesus Christ. But it means that we have this wayward tendency. Our intellects are, are dimmed, our wills weakened, our emotions are no longer in alignment with reason. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, right? Our emotions are no longer aligned with reason. So that means oftentimes, as the words of St. Paul, I do the very thing I don't want to do, and I don't do the very thing I want to do. Who will deliver me from this wretched body? And then St. Paul goes on to proclaim Christ Jesus. See, this is the thing. This is the thing. Written into the very fabric of our being is what we call the law of iniquity, the law of sin. That it is constantly trying to undo the very thing that God has been doing in your life. And you will always fail if you do it on your own. You will always fail if you do it on your own. Jesus Christ lived the Christian life, which is impossible for you and me. He lived it so well they named it after him, right? And so what they want to do, right, what Jesus did was he came up with a covert way of breaking this, this law of sin in your life. And that is called the Holy Spirit. The very spirit of Christ is breathed out upon you and me, giving us the ability to overcome sin, death, and darkness in our own lives. Right? Sin, death, and darkness in our own lives. That is to say, taking the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power therein, and unleashing it into the human heart. Okay? But there was something else that happened in the garden that day. You might miss it if you don't see it, if you're not paying attention. God killed an animal. He took the skins of the animal to clothe the man and the woman. Right here, there's something very powerful signified by this. That something had to die to cover the nakedness of the man and the woman. That something had to die to deal with the effects of sin. Now, it wasn't adequate because it didn't deal with the cause of sin. And we find this over and over again throughout the Old Testament. But something died, blood was shed, so that their nakedness could be covered. But then we go on to the story of Noah, right? You know the story, well, next is Cain and Abel, right? For those who say, uh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, let me introduce you to two brothers who were spiritual, but not religious. There they are, sacrificing to God, offering praise and worship to God. Cain doing it uh, half-heartedly, Abel doing it wholeheartedly. Cain got ticked off, so he murdered his brother. God came to him and as an act of mercy and said, why are you crestfallen? Sin is couching at the door, waiting to pounce on you. 
Knock it off, right? And so what did he do the next thing he murders? Why? Because that's what sin does. Because now pride is rooted so deep in our hearts that if we cannot justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to our neighbor, right? And his neighbor was his brother Abel. If we can't compare our, if we can't justify ourselves by comparing ourselves to someone else, then our hearts turn from pride to envy. What's the difference between envy and jealousy? Jealousy wants what another has. Envy will destroy what another has so that um, no one can have it, right? Jealousy. Girl has a pretty dress, so the other girls go out and buy the same dress because they want to have the same thing. That's jealousy, right? What is envy? Envy is the movie Carrie where she comes in and then they throw pig's blood on her, right? That's envy. That's the difference. Envy is always destructive, always evil, always wrong. And yet it's in our human hearts. You ever been uh, ticked off when someone else in your, in your group gets promoted? You ever been happy when something bad happens to someone else, to an enemy, right? That's envy. That's pride gone destructive, okay? And then we look at, we look at the story of Noah. There in the story of Noah is a seed of the gospel again. One man's righteousness saves the human race. I know we think the story of Noah is like, what do you mean saves the human race? God literally just drowned everyone. Well, he didn't drown everyone. He preserved a righteous remnant, right? Noah and his family to continue to hit the Nintendo reset button on the world, right? To restart humanity, to reboot it. A righteous man. But we know he wasn't perfectly righteous, that he wasn't enough. And he failed ultimately. In fact, right after the flood, they get out of the ark, plants a vineyard, gets drunk. All sorts of things (laughs) ensue that are awful. But think about that. By one man's righteousness, humanity goes on. Humanity is saved. We have the story of Abraham. I love the story of Abraham, right? God is about to bring about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And here you have a man. Like, think about this in terms of all the other religions who view gods that did anything to humanity only only if they killed enough animals to get their attention, right? Or did enough prayers to get the deity's attention, right? And here, you know, they view that, that the gods dealing with men is like boys swatting at flies on a summer day. And here you have this figure of Abraham standing on a mountain, praying to God, saying, Lord, you're going to destroy Sodom, but what if there are a hundred innocent people? And God says, all right, I won't destroy it. Well, what if there are 90? All right, I won't destroy it. It's one of the most annoyingly repetitive readings of it, but it's powerful in what it doesn't say. And it's meant to take your mind there. What if there's 90? What if there's 80? What if there's, what if there's 50? What if there's 40? What is it? And you're like, okay, I won't destroy it. And it keeps, keeps going over and over again. Lord, what if there's 20? Lord, what if there's 10? All right, I won't. And Abraham stopped there. But in our heart of hearts, we know what the next thing should have been. Lord, what if there's one righteous person? And here God starts to leverage this notion that the righteous can save the multitude. That the righteous can save the multitude. And we look over and over again throughout the Old Testament history, and it's pointing to something impossibly amazing. That God himself, that God himself would enter into human, the human story, human history, would take on the very body, blood, the very human will and intellect that we use to commit the sins that abandon God, that rebel against God. And he would take that whole humanity onto himself. And then he would go one step further. And he would take all of our sin upon himself. To deliver us from sin. 
to not just cover our nakedness, to not just cover the results of sin, but to go to the very source of that sin, which is your heart and my heart. To have a human heart that is so perfectly divine that by his infinite power, he can connect himself to every one of us. And so perfectly human that he can suffer and experience the suffering of what that sin does in relationship to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The experience of complete separation from God. Jesus embraced so that you might never have to. Jesus embraced the complete separation of God so that you might never have to. So what is evangelization? Evangelization is proclaiming what Jesus did. What did he do? He took your sin. He took your shame into himself. He became filled with shame. Scripture says he became sin. I don't even know what that means, but that's what it says. He became sin. Colossians chapter 1 says, he took the bill of death written against us so that he could transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the light. Why does this matter for us today? It matters for us today because if this really did happen, why would we not tell other people? Why would we, why would we be afraid to tell other people? Why does it prevent us I mean, what is it about the message? Hey, guess what God has done? You don't have to earn your salvation. God wants to give you salvation. God the Father sent his son into the world to take away the very thing that ruins marriages, that ruins countries, that ruins families, that ruins you. And he took it into himself and he died. And then he rose to show that death itself cannot own you. It's not the period at the end of the sentence of your life. Why would we not want to share it? I'll tell you why we don't want to share it. Because we don't really believe it matters. We don't share. I mean, when I got engaged to my wife, I told everyone. Do you, are you friends with young adults on Facebook? It is sickening how much they post pictures of their engagement photos, right? You see these, uh, by the lack of laughs, I'm guessing you don't have anyone doing that. But uh, <laughs> Are you convinced that you are not your own salvation. See, if you're prideful, pretty sure all of us are, if you're prideful, that hurts. That means you're doing everything right in the world, quote unquote right, is actually not enough. But it also means this, that the reward, right, is far greater than even if you were perfect. Jesus wants to give you something more more than just earthly delights. He wants to give you his very self. He wants to give you eternal life. Eternal life. Why are we not sharing this with people? Why are we not sharing this with people? What does it mean to have eternal life? It's not something that starts in heaven. It's something that starts now. Something that starts in baptism. Something that starts in a living faith. If you were baptized as an infant and you have never really been convinced, you have what we call a dead faith. You have the ability to believe placed in you by your baptism, the presence of the Holy Spirit, but you haven't actualized it. You haven't made it come alive. And so what Jesus Christ wants to do more than anything else is stir up this faith. He wants to make it alive. He wants it to be the most important thing. So what is faith? Faith is complete entrustment 
to our Savior. Give up your 401k idea of control. Give up your security. Give up your power and placement in this world and give it to him. Let him secure your life. That is why the rich man rarely enter, or it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is to take a camel, put it through the eye of a needle. Why? Because he has his security in his riches. He has his security in his riches. The rich young man, the rich young ruler goes to Jesus. Master, I've kept all these commandments. What still do I lack? Go. If you will be perfect, go. Sell all you have. Give to the poor and come follow me. It says he left dejected for he had many possessions. So what do we do? If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and if he is your savior and the Lord of your life, he reprioritizes money, power, wealth, and pleasure. And makes them all submit, not just, not just that you're not breaking any mortal sins or something like that. Jesus didn't give us the gospel of sin management. He gave us the gospel of abundant life. So what that means is you reprioritize your money, your power, your wealth, and your pleasure. You reprioritize that for the spread of his mission. His mission is your mission. You don't, it's not optional. <laughs> like, it's not optional at all. When you were baptized, you were given this mission. In fact, if you look at the Code of Canon Law, this mission comes before everything else under the term, the rights of the lay faithful, the right to hear and to proclaim the word of God. That's the very first right of a lay person in the Catholic Church. So what does that mean for us today? That means for us today that we need to look at our lives and reprioritize how we view, how we view everything. Do we put God first ahead of our spouse? If not, we're doing marriage wrong. Do we put God first ahead of our kids? If not, we're doing, mar- we're doing uh, family wrong, right? Do we put God first in front of our careers? If not, we're doing our careers wrong. We're not being extra hardworking. What that means is you are justifying yourself based on your career. Jesus wants to justify. Okay, how can we surrender this stuff? I'm glad you asked. That's what we're going to talk about next time. Do you find it difficult to enter into the mysteries of the rosary? What about personally applying them to your life? Drawing from the writings of the saints, the Bible, and Catholic tradition, Matt Frat has produced Pocket Guide to the Rosary, a masterful work that teaches Catholics how to truly meditate on the mysteries of the rosary, how to pray the rosary like the saints, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your prayer life and improve the way you pray what St. Padre Pio called the weapon of our times, we invite you to check out Pocket Guide to the Rosary by Matt Frad. To order, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. So I want to end... Uh, with two questions that I want you to talk about in your small groups. Number one, are you writing this down? No? Yes? Okay. <laughs> Number one, <clears throat> what is the hardest thing about evangelizing? What is the hardest thing about evangelizing in your own life? Uh, what's the hardest thing about evangelizing? I-, I think that question would probably, if everyone shares in your group, take up the whole time. But I think we need to press on to one more question. Okay? How does the death and resurrection of Jesus affect your life? 
How does the death and resurrection of Jesus affect your life? That's a big, big open-ended question. So I want you, and the reason why I wrote that, I want you to interpret it however you specifically want. You can say, oh, well, I love that Jesus did this for me. Yeah. Or you can say, it changed my marriage, right? You can look at this in a big way, okay? So those are the two questions that you have the, the 20 minutes now to, to spend and go through, okay? Let me pray for you. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and a recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of these men. We ask that you constantly renew and ratify their faith. Because we are human, we are always in need of renewal. By our devotion to the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, May we go forth building up the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Lady, patroness of the new evangelization, pray for us.